Ladies and gentlemen, a two-time Academy Award recipient who was last year's winner for actor in a leading role, Sean Penn. I, uh, I never became an official member of the Academy, but the Academy and I do have in common that we managed to n neglect to acknowledge the same actress in our own ways in two years running. So I, I, I am going to start fresh with the Academy and, and uh, acknowledge these wonderful actresses. Uh, here are the nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role. Sandra Bullock, The Blind Side. <laughs> Helen Mirren, The Last Station. <laughs> Carrie Mulligan, In an Education. <laughs> Gabourey Sidibe, for Precious. <laughs> and Meryl Streep, for Julia and Julia. And the winner is... Hello there, all you rebels and tigers. This is Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Still the only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands. Welcome to episode 202. We're going to discuss an eclectic woman, an actress who has lived many lives. Uh, before going into space, she got sober, went undercover in a gown, won a Pulitzer Prize. She was a bus driver, a law student, and a cop, both in present day and the future. In life, she is a humble philanthropist, an aspiring novelist, an undervalued comedian, and my childhood crush. Her name? Sandra Bullock in the Brown for Sandra Bullock. Sandra Annette Bullock. Annette, I like that middle name. Nobody's called Annette anymore. And despite the respect that we have for uh, Ms. Bullock, she shouldn't have won Best Actress of 2010. <laughs> Man, this hurts. This one's gonna hurt a bit. And as I was waiting to get on with recording today, I watched her acceptance speech. Did I really earn this or did I just wear y'all down? Um, <laughs> I, I would like to thank the Academy for allowing me in the last month to have the most incredible ride with rooms full of artists that I see tonight and that I've worked with before and I hope to work with in the future, who inspire me and blaze trails for us, four of them that I've fallen deeply in love with, I share this night with and I share this award with. Um, Gabby, I love you so much. You are exquisite. You are beyond words to me. Carrie, your grace and your elegance and your beauty and your talent makes me sick. Um, <laughs> Helen, I, I feel like we are family through family and I, I don't have the words to express just what I think of you and Meryl. You know what I think of you and you're such a good kisser. <laughs> I have so many people to thank for my good fortune in this lifetime and this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I know. To the family that allowed me to play them, the Tui family, I know they're in here and you'll probably hear her in a minute. Maybe not. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to the family that made this film that gave me the opportunity to do something different. John Lee Hancock, Gil Netter, 
Alcon, Warner Brothers, the actors, everyone who's shown me kindness when it wasn't fashionable, I thank you. To everyone who was mean to me uh, when it wasn't felt like George Clooney threw me in a pool years ago, I'm still holding a grudge. But there's so many people to thank, not enough time, so I would like to thank what this film was about for me, which are the moms that take care of the babies and the children no matter where they come from. Those moms and parents never get thanked. Uh, I, in particular, uh, failed to thank one. So, if I can take this moment to thank Helga B. Um, for not letting me ride in cards with boys till I was 18 because she was right, I would have done what she said I was gonna do. <laughs> for making me practice every day when I got home, piano, ballet, whatever it is I wanted to be. She said to be an artist, you had to practice every day and for reminding her daughters that there's no race, no religion, no class system, no color, nothing, no sexual orientation that makes us better than anyone else. We are all deserving of love. So to that trailblazer who allowed me to have that and this and this. I thank you so much for this opportunity that I share with these extraordinary women and my lover Meryl Streep. Thank you. <laughs>watched Forrest Whitaker talk so highly about her and I agreed with everything that he said about her performance about the kind of person that she is I agree with your opening I love her to death man and I feel like a lot of the times on the show I'm like would I say this to these people's faces <laughs> if, if we ever came face to face and they're like I, I heard you would take my Oscar away most of the time I would most of the time I'd be like you know I, I stated my opinion I, I don't think I could say this to Sandra Bullock's face that we were taking this Oscar away because I love her so much and while I do not have the boyhood adulation for Miss Bullock as you did I think most warm-blooded males had clipped an image or two of her after Speed and Demolition Man back in the day while I do believe that she has turned in some nomination worthy work, especially her role in Gravity. I'm surprised it was her role as Leanne Tui that the Academy felt was the deserving piece. I mean, was it bad? No. I'd be hard pressed to find a role where I would say, I don't know, man, Sandra just didn't have it this time. I mean, like, I always find her enjoyable. And in the blind side, I find her enjoyable. But should just the enjoyment of the performance be what wins you the biggest acting award of the year? I, I feel, let's get into it. What do you think people should look for when looking at a performance or person for a, an acting award? Oh, I like it. You're going to set the, we're going to set the framework. This is a direct response to our, some, some critics of season one who were like, I'm not quite sure how you're picking this stuff. It just feels like, you know, you're like, yeah, it's the best. So let's discuss our expectations. I know you talk often of transformation as far, you know, like an actor or an actress taking on a role that requires them to sort of shed their own skin and take on the skin of another. Sounds gross. I like transformation just as much as you, but I don't think it guarantees a good performance or even a good movie. What I'm looking for is, is range. I want to see actors run the gamut of emotions. And in that way, the role and the story kind of have quite a bit to do with the best performances in order to run the gamut of emotions, in order to be able to demonstrate how versatile you are. The part has to be well-written. It has to be dynamic, et cetera, et cetera. I think part and parcel to that too is that I, I want to feel like the actor gets the character 
so much so that their performance feels naturally unacted. And uh, I think I, we're going to talk about that naturally unacted feel later on. But what do you think? I pretty much agree with you. I have gone on the record about transformation, kind of thinking like Charlize Theron for Monster or Daniel Day-Lewis and almost pretty much everything that he's ever done. But as as we're looking into it, I also want to include work put in. What a what an actor puts in, being able to tell how much work an actor put in. I guess what that is saying is typecasting aside, you know, putting somebody in that's going to play somebody that's exactly like them. You know, if somebody plays themselves in a, if Nick Saban <laughs> got an acting knob for playing Nick Saban in The Blind Side, I would be I wait uh, because that's just a person playing themselves. And I think a person playing like within their type, while might be remarkable, I think is an, a steeper hill to climb when it comes to nominating a best performance. This was my big beef with the fact that Sasha Baron Cohen was up for best supporting actor. I think you shared the same beef. It was like, you know, this isn't much of a stretch for him to play this dude. Um, okay. Do you have any Academy fun facts that you would like to share with me and or our listeners today? Brilliant segue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro & Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us... There's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd dog. <laughs> well, let's get into it. So this is the best actress category. We went over in the first season how nominees are selected. Actors are the ones who select actors, directors nominate directors, editors nominate editors, and then the whole Academy votes when Price Waterhouse Coopers determines who the official nominees are. So since its inception, the Academy Award for Best Actress has been given out to 77 actresses. Katherine Hepburn leads the winning of this category, bringing home four awards. Meryl Streep leads in nominations with 16. Sophia Loren, an Italian actress, was the first actress to win an Academy Award for a foreign language film. And in 1986, Marley Matlin was the youngest to win the Academy for the film 
children of a lesser God at the age of 22, which is pretty old, I think. Like, I I've thought that was going to be a younger age. As far as elderly, <laughs> uh, Miss Daisy herself, Jessica Tandy, is the oldest to win the award at the age of 80. To date, only 14 nominations for Best Actress have been given to actresses of African descent, with the only one being Halle Berry in 2001 for her turn in the Lee Daniels-produced Monsters Ball. Viola Davis has been nominated twice and should have won last year, if you ask me. But what makes a woman worthy of being called Best Actress? Wikipedia defines it as an honor given to an actress who has delivered an outstanding performance in a leading role, which is vague as all hell. So let's break that down. What's a leading role? A leading role is someone who plays the role of the protagonist of a film. The word lead may also refer to the largest role in the piece. Sometimes there is more than one significant leading role in a dramatic piece, and the actors are said to play co-leads. A large supporting role may be considered a secondary lead. This is getting complicated, but an award nominations for acting often reflect such ambiguities. Thus... Sometimes two actors in the same performance piece are nominated for Best Actor or Best Actress, categories traditionally reserved for leads. For example, in 1935, Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Franchot Tone were each nominated for the Best Actor Academy Award for Mutiny on the Bounty. But what in the hoot nanny decides what is a Best Actress role versus what is a Best Supporting Actress role? According to the Academy Awards' official list of rules, quote, the determination as to whether a role is a leading or supporting role shall be made individually by members of the branch at the time of balloting, which basically means that the Academy of Voters get to decide and doesn't really help to clear things up. The rule book also states that if any performance should receive votes in both categories, the achievement shall be placed only on the ballot in that category in which, during the tabulation process, it first receives the required number of votes to be nominated. <sighs> which means that it's totally possible for an actor to be considered in both categories, though they'll only make the official nomination list for one. Still, there can be some assumptions made based on screen time and the nature of the part. If there's a central character, for instance, the best actor nomination would likely go to them, while movies with ensemble casts may require a little bit more discussion. Can it be that we, what we know as the Academy Awards for Best Actress and Best Supporting aren't defined by any clear-cut rules? Absolutely. Take, for instance, back in 2007 with Lion. Deb Patel led brilliantly as the emotionally tortured Saru Berardi, but was ultimately nominated under Best Supporting Role. Australia's SBS theorized that this stemmed from some strategic jostling from producers, not uncommon for award shows, as we know, as Patel might may stand a better shot at winning outside of the Ryan Gosling, Casey Affleck standoff for Best Actor. So they knew that the front runners were Ryan Gosling and Casey Affleck. And so what they did was they made him a supporting actor to try and get him the Academy Award. It's crazy. Basically, there aren't any concrete rules that define a leading performer from a supporting one. It's really just a judgment call behind the scenes. It's kind of like last year when you wondered why Viola Davis was up for Best Actress when it was really kind of like a supporting role. So in the end, what makes an actress a Best Actress? In the final words of you, Lee Charles, it's just like somebody's opinion, man. So let's give ours. Okay. So basically what you're telling me, <laughs> what you're telling me and what you're telling our listeners is that the acting, all four acting nominations are basically 
up to the discretion of the academy. Correct. There's no clear cut rules. Like really stupid. Going in, I thought that it was going to be like a line count, right? Or a percentage of screen time. I thought all these things, but really in the end, if you make a good enough argument that you should be nominated for this award over this award, you're going to win the, the argument, not necessarily the award. Okay. Let's go through some of these uh, lesser award shows. MTV Movie Awards which Spro is on record as being a huge fan of, and me not so much. We have Kristen Stewart in the second of the Twilight Saga, New Moon. We have Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried? Seafood, Seyfried, in the (laughs) tear-jerking Dear John. And then we have Emma Watson in the sixth Harry Potter film, The Half-Blood Prince. And I don't remember anything about New Moon. I didn't see Dear John. Half-Blood Prince, I always think of, if, if I'm thinking of Emma Watson in it, I'm thinking of the scene where she's up in that, like, tower, crying alone and conjuring birds because uh, Weasley, and why she's into Weasley, God only knows. Pretty girls like idiots. I mean, ask my wife. Um... She's conjuring birds and crying about Weasley, and then she makes the birds attack him when he shows up. Charm spell. Just practicing. Well, they're really good. How does it feel, Harry? When you see Dean with Ginny. I know. I see the way you look at her. You're my best friend. (laughs) Oops. I think this room's taken. What's with the birds? A pugno. Anyway, she gets bit in the end by that uh, big werewolf-looking motherfucker. All right. Yeah. Big fat no to all of those. The Golden Globes, which, I mean, I would almost at this point not even talk about the Golden Globes since they have created a pretty shitty reputation for themselves, especially in the wake of some of their choices for last year. But uh, we have Sandra Bullock for The Proposal, interestingly enough, Meryl Streep for It's Complicated, Julia Roberts for Duplicity. I don't even think I know what that movie is. And Marion Cotillard for Nine. What do you think about that there? Uh, The Golden Globe for comedy is always a dodgy category for me. While I would like the Academy to acknowledge more genres outside of historical fiction and drama, looking at the nominees for this, you kind of go, yeah, maybe not. I do want to point out that at the Golden Globes this year, Sandra Bullock was nominated for both drama and comedy, showing the threat that she is. Uh, But as far as the Academy goes, I would only really look at Cotillard's performance in Nine, which was Rob Marshall's follow-up to Chicago. And if our listeners remember from season one, you weren't very hyped up on Chicago as I was. But I think if you look at Nine, 
you could see just how difficult Chicago was to pull off because nine, holy crap, was not pulled off at all. Despite its overwhelming star power of, uh, you have like Daniel Day-Lewis, Cotillard, Penelope Cruz, Judy Dench, Fergie, Kate Hudson, Nicole Kidman, and Sophia Loren. Look, I rewatched the trailer, which got me to rewatch the film. And man, that trailer is awesome. And it dupes me every time because man, that movie is not. Bullock is terrific in the proposal. Honestly, she doesn't deserve an Oscar or a Golden Globe for the proposal or the blind side. But given the choice, I would give it to her for the proposal. To the universe! The universe! Ah, ah. universe. Yes. Ooh, to the crazy. Yes. To the window. Yes. The window. Yeah. Wall. Oh, just swept your tongue, my balls. Oh, you bitches. Louder! To the window, to the window, to the walls, to the walls. Just swept your tongue, my balls. Oh, you bitches. Crawl. Oh, he sees for the, oh, he sees on damn. To the window, to the walls, to the walls. She's hilarious in the proposal. And you must know that I've not seen nine. I haven't even seen Fellini's nine and a half, which that's based on. So, uh. Moving on to the BAFTAs, an actress that I am big on these days, mostly because of her collaborations with Greta Gerwig, is Saoirse Ronan uh, in The Lovely Bones. She was up for Best Actress at the BAFTAs, as was Audrey Tattoo for Coco Before Chanel. Yeah, no, I also really like Saoirse. It's, it's amazing that this is her second film after Atonement, uh, which we discussed in our season opener this year. And she gives it all. She is the best thing about this movie other than Stanley Tucci. And if you like Stanley Tucci, this is a film to watch to see him take a remarkably dark turn. The only reason probably to watch this film is to see Stanley Tucci as a bad guy. Other than that, this movie is all over the place. Audrey Tattoo is, I mean, I always remember her from Amelie, which I think is a better movie than Coco Before Chanel. I think her performance in Amelie is better, and I would uh, just eliminate her on that alone. You know, what's a great movie with Audrey Tattoo is uh, A Very Long Engagement. That's It's a French I, film. I haven't seen it. Jodie Foster shows up in it, actually, and has this very strange side story where she agrees to have a baby for a man who is going into battle and who can't have a baby with his wife, if I remember correctly. I'm not huge on sex scenes, but uh, there was something like, it was all very French. <laughs> I couldn't get through the book or the movie Lovely Bones. And I tried really hard with the book, which is saying a lot because I'll walk away from a book with the quickness of a public school student. But I think I, I tried on four or five separate occasions and got just a little bit further each time. And I couldn't bring myself to give a shit. So moving on to the Saturns, the Saturn Awards, where they nominated Zoe Saldana for her role in Avatar, Catherine Keener for Where the Wild Things Are, Melanie Laurent uh, as Shoshana in Inglorious Bastards, Alison Lohman in Drag Me to Hell, Natalie Portman in Brothers, and Charlize Theron in The Burning Plain. Fun fact about the Saturn Awards, you could be a voting member of them by donating to their cause. How much? I don't think it's that much. I think it's like a hundred or a couple hundred of dollars. Their website looks janky as hell. I was, I like going over to seeing what the Saturn Awards picked. You know, when the Academy Awards was looking for most popular film, we're putting that category into effect. I really believe that this is what Saturn does. They take the best 
of the popular films and figure out what the best part of them are. But I was a little let down visiting their website considering the fact it almost looks like it was made on geocities.com. As far as like the nominations go, the only one here that kind of makes me cock my eyebrow is Zoe Saldana. And it's not like I necessarily disagree, but Avatar, it was the most nominated film of the year. I'm pretty sure in retrospect, even though they're making five to six more and there's going to be a whole park based off of it. Was it that good? (laughs) It's an interesting pick. No, it wasn't that good. And, uh, but I will, I'll disagree with you just because I like to. I think it's about time that the Academy started recognizing performances like these purely CGI. I guess when I say purely CGI, that's not necessarily true because I've spent more time watching the special features on the Lord of the Rings DVDs than I have probably the movies. And that's saying a lot. But watching Andy Serkis bring Gollum to life with motion capture, with um, reference takes, and really just being there for the other actors, it's, you know, I guess the visual effects Oscar, I feel there's, you know, that's sort of them being like, well, that's, that's what you get. But I don't know, man, it's just, it's, I don't think it's something that's ever going to be recognized, but I think that it should, which then also brings into play considering voice acting for, for an Oscar. I just don't think it'll ever happen, even in, you know, our lifetimes. Yeah. I'm always looking for like new and interesting categories. We talked about when it came to our Coraline episode that they should separate visual effects and practical effects uh, or CGI effects versus practical effects and make those two categories to try and get people to do more practical effects. Voice acting, I mean, maybe eventually stunt work, I think should also be a one and maybe casting director but if someone were like pick from these six Saturn nominees to put on the academy of stage i would have to go with melanie laurent from inglorious bastards her shosana might be my favorite qt female protagonist i felt it was probably one of the most well-rounded characters of the female persuasion that he has written and i don't think he forced her to show her bare feet which was a good thing Yeah. Bastards is one that I just cannot, I cannot wrap my head around it. Why people like it so much. I don't want to go into a a Quentin Tarantino tributary here, but it's one of those movies that, especially when you find out that he had just hundreds upon hundreds of pages of a script, it's like that would have served the characters of the Bastards so much more. But instead, they kind of become background to Shoshana. Shoshana's story is the best part of the film. So he's got this like, these like little scattered snippets of what the bastards are up to while there's a clear thoroughfare for Melanie Laurent's character. Um, And they overlap here and there. I just, I don't love that movie as much as everybody else does. But as far as female leads by Quentin Tarantino, I got to go with Beatrix Kiddo. I know you're not a Kill Bill fan. But she was my hero for many years, followed closely, of course, by uh, Pam Greer's Jackie Brown. All right, moving on to Unrecognized. Uh, I came upon this movie called Bright Star, and the lead actress in that film, Abby Cornish, uh, was not nominated for anything that we could find. There's no air. No, Mama, they love the heat. We're going to lose them. Listen, I love you more in that I believe you have liked me for my own sake. I've met with women whom I really think would like to be married to a poem to be given away by a novel. Mama, don't be cross. 
When I don't hear from him, it's as if I've died. As if the air is sucked out from my lungs. And I'm left desolate. But when I receive a letter, I know our world is real. It's the one I care for. You put Bright Star as an unrecognized on your list. And I'm glad that you did because I looked through the list of film in this year and I couldn't see anyone overlooked. I gave it a gander. And I don't think I've ever heard of Bright Star. I do know Abby Cornish. But when talking about her, I want to revisit an episode from season one where we gave the Oscar to Natalie Portman for Jackie over Ruth Nega in Loving. I stand by that. But I will now go back and forth sometimes after seeing Ruth Nega in the show Preacher. I think I had never seen a different Ruth Nega performance. I don't think I understood necessarily who that actress was. And when it comes to Abby Cornish in Bright Star, there is something to these quiet performances, these restrained performances that is captivating and it it looks like they are like just trapping they're going against all of their training as an actor to emote big and let the audience see it and they're just completely restrained i don't know she's like excitement trapped in a corset in this movie and she was really good and i'm i'm glad that you brought this up and i'm i'm hoping more of our audience will go out to see bright star despite it feeling like a poetry lesson well i saw it was nominated for the palm d'or and i wanted to know why i'd never heard of it before and probably because nobody talks about jane camp campion really anymore uh, I know you just mentioned to me the other day that you watched uh, Top of the Lake. That's the most recent thing that I remember her making. And this was even before that. But, but Cornish is really good. She's good. I think everybody in the movie is really good. But my interest in it was just doomed from the word go because I cannot stand the Romantic era English poetry. I don't know what I'm missing, but it feels just bloated and I don't know. It's long and I don't feel that it's worthy of the praise that it's given. But in any event, I was definitely dazzled by some of the scenery. I see why it was nominated for Palm d'Or. Uh, very good English countrysides, very pastoral. But I think I'm kind of spent on period dramas for now, unless you want to talk about Gerwig's Little Women. And I'm always down to talk about that one. All right, moving on. The Golden Globe for drama, one of the nominations that you wanted to talk about was Emily Blunt as young Victoria, a young Emily Blunt as a young Victoria. I must have been 11 when I learned that I was nearer to the crown than I had thought. Her Royal Highness Princess Victoria of Kent. So I began to dream of the day when my life would change. Prayed for the strength to meet my destiny. I pass the royal authority directly to that young lady. From now on, everyone will push you and pull you for their own advantage. You are unprepared. And whose fault is that? Should you ever need an ally, you have one in me. His Serene Highness, Prince Albert. What is it? Don't you like her? More than I dared hope. There will be more than one vulture to contend with. Who controls the young girl most? Who controls England? So I have no say in my own palaces. I you will sign this order. I will not! How dare you! If you think that I will ever forget that you stood by and watched him treat me thus, you are dreaming. Sometimes I feel quite alone in the world. I know what it is to live alone inside your head while never giving a clue as to your real feelings. She found the courage to follow her heart and to discover her destiny. Her Majesty the Queen. 
Do you ever feel like a chess piece in a game being played against your will? Do you? Constantly. Then you had better master the rules of the game until you play it better than they can. You don't recommend I find a husband to play it for me? Not for you. With you. Based on the true story... There are plenty of people who will expect me to fail. Then they don't know you like I do. ...of the young woman who ruled an empire. You have courage and heart. You're stronger than you look. Do not lose faith in yourself or your people. Your honesty will take you through the storm. And the passion that ruled her life. We will take care of each other, won't we? Always. Yeah, absolutely. If anything, the research for this episode brought me to this movie about a young Queen Victoria before her coronation to the crown and how much society and even her own mother tried to wrestle her born given power away from her before she knew any better. This was, I think, Emily Blunt's first starring role. And upon seeing it, I mean, you wonder why it took so long. I've, I think it took me a while to buy in to the Emily Blunt praise train, but I'm firmly aboard it now and especially after seeing young victoria and i do believe that anybody that likes emily blunt maybe because of the her horror roles in a quiet place or her turn as the new mary poppins you need to go back and see young victoria because she is she commands the screen simply by showing up she plays a subtle character arc so unbelievably well and if I think if we're looking for an Oscar snub this year, I think it's her. I think it's here. I am a fan. Uh, I think she's eventually going to walk away with the gold. It's only a matter of time. That brings us to the nominees for Best Actress of 2010. And I say 2010 because I have adopted the can't beat him, join him. It's called the Best Actress of 2010, but all of these films came out in 2009. So these are listed in alphabetical order. We may not necessarily take them in alphabetical order, but the winner obviously was Sandra Bullock playing Leanne Tui in The Blind Side. Other nominees included Helen Mirren, in The Last Station, playing Sophia Tolstaya, Carrie Mulligan in An Education as Jenny Malore, Meryl Streep in Julie and Julia as Julia Child, and Gabri Sidibe in Precious, based on the novel pushed by Sapphire as Clarice Precious Jones. There's a moment in The Blind Side when Sandra Bullock, playing a tough woman who gives no excuse for her behavior and who tries not to show her emotions, is told by a young man that she's taken in this is the first time that he has laid down on a bed. And everything you need to know about how that character feels is in her eyes. I had the great pleasure of directing Sandy in the film Hope Floats, and I got to see firsthand the beauty of her work, which she does with such ease that some miss the delicacies and the complexities inside of it. But the breadth and the depth of her heart, which she allows us to share, is that intangible, magical quality that you can never miss in a Sandra Bullock performance. All right, I guess we got to get into this. So we got to talk Sandra first. Since we're taking it away from her, she should be the first thing we talk about, not the last, certainly not the second to last. So did you know that Blindside actually has something in common with Dances with Wolves, 
Gran Torino and the smash action, historical, epic hit, The Great Wall, starring the one and only Matt Damon. They're all stories about how white folks save the day for non-white folks. These films are often lumped together under the unenviable category of white savior stories. So if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, I think the best way to explain the white savior trope is through movies about teachers, Dangerous Minds, or Freedom Riders, maybe even Half Nelson, if you're familiar, the one with uh, Gosling, where he teaches underprivileged youth while also battling a drug addiction. I think it's crack or no, maybe it's heroin. Doesn't matter. So essentially in these stories, you have this uh, middle-class white teacher enter a school of predominantly non-white students after some culture shock, maybe some animosity, a connection is made. And because of the steadfast dedication of the white authority figure, the students begin to progress and the white hero rescues the non-white victims from their circumstances. So Kathleen Fitzgerald, author of Recognizing Race and Ethnicity, Power, Privilege, and Inequality, believes that these films are not inherently racist. Instead, she just criticizes them for underscoring the efforts of minority group teachers who have been successfully educating racial, ethnic, cultural minority group students in their communities without the saving stewardship of white people. So I guess the antithesis to the white savior would teaching movie would be a, a film like Stand and Deliver, true story of a minority teacher teaching math to underprivileged, mostly minority students. So I have to admit, I grew up watching a lot of these movies and liking them too. Glory was a big deal to me as a kid, but that is lumped in as a white savior. And Matthew Broderick's just the worst fucking thing about that movie. He's <laughs> god awful, terrible, shit ass casting. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, Stargate is one that's that's listed in there. I saw that in the theater. That shit was a riot. I loved that movie. Mm -hmm. Not such a fan of the TV show. Even To Kill a Mockingbird is, is listed in there. But as I've gotten older, I've kind of found these stories to be corny, trite. Uh, and bl Blindside's definitely both corny and trite. What do you think of the white savior trope, my friend? Well, it's hard. It's hard because historically in this country, European settlers have run the course of things while pushing their thumb and their boot heels down on the people below them to keep their power and their control over every aspect of this country. So the white savior stories is these people taking their boot heel or this this class of people taking their boot heel off the throats of the people that they have traditionally oppressed. You're going to have these stories. Now, why do we have these stories? Why does Hollywood feel like it's important? And why do audiences, namely the European settler audience members, go to these stories to feel better about themselves to feel like, oh, yes, look, we're helping. That is what I don't know. That is what I question. Um, when it came to the blind side, I felt like it was less of a white savior story and more of something going along the lines of socioeconomic factors when it comes to it, because you walk into their house and even I, <laughs> with my, what I'm wearing right now is a white undershirt and cargo shorts, like would not fit in at the house at all. And, and they could save me for my current situation if they wanted to. Um, <laughs> But it got cringy when she was buying him clothes. 
to me when you know and then when they buy him a brand new pickup like that's when i was like okay we're less <laughs> we're less helping out and more dressing up a doll and 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 pushing our wealth onto somebody else and so that's where when you brought up like the teacher stories i was like oh yeah yeah like i could see that as being a white savior story and that's a good example but in the same instance that also has gray area i don't know i'm on record i think last season saying that race is probably the second most complicated conversation to have in this country. And anytime I talk about it as a cisgendered bohemian British male, (laughs) I feel like I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. Uh, Well, I kind of put you on the spot there. (laughs) I apologize for that. No, not a problem. So, you know, we're not here necessarily to talk about the films, but, you know, as I said in earlier, I think it's the role is important. The script is important. If it's a shitty script and the role does not provide the actor with really any kind of opportunity to showcase their talents, then we're probably not going to be giving, it's a rare day um, that we're going to be giving that person an acting Oscar, which is interesting because you bring up in your notes that the blind side wasn't really nominated for anything else so they gave her best actress and what did you say it was nominated for best picture and best actress and that's it that's it there is there was no nothing else was regarded in this film as being academy award nominated worthy not best director not best writer nothing technological you know not cinematography not editing it was sandra bullock and that was it and i agree with that I agree with that wholeheartedly, but I also then agree with you where it's like, does that, doesn't that sort of contradict itself then? You're going to say that this movie is really only worthy of a best actress and best picture nomination and none of the other categories. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to step on that because I know that was your point. So you well, can add no, that. I mean, I'm glad that you brought it up. So this is the first year where they went up to 10 categories and we will probably dissect that even more. I know we briefly touched upon it in the first season uh, with the up episode because up was one of the best picture candidates. Now there's 10 best picture candidates this year. The blind side is one of them. The blind side is the only one that was ne- neither nominated for best director or best writing, because of course there's 10 writing awards with between adapted and original. And this would have been under adapted. It was not. There's a film in there. I don't know it off at the top of my head because it was only nominated for writing, but it knocked the blind side out, which is even more glaring when it, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Was it, um, was it an, the Iranian film, A Separation? No, no it was okay. a comedy. Yeah, it was a British um, film, a British film about the Iraq invasion. The title is escaping me. Since we're talking about The Blind Side and we're talking about best picture and scripts, it's important to mention that Michael Orr had some public beef after the film came out, particularly with regards to the portrayal of his intelligence. So this is kind of a long block quote, but I found it interesting. So it says, in his book, I beat the odds from homelessness to the blind side and beyond, Orr wrote, I felt like it, the movie, portrayed me as dumb instead of as a kid who had never had consistent academic instruction and ended up thriving once he got it. The film's claim that he didn't understand football was another point of irritation for Orr. When talking about watching his adoptive family teach him, he said, no, that's not me at all. I've been studying, really studying the game since I was a kid. So that's that scene where they've got all the condiments out 
which I actually thought was really clever. That's a really clever way to teach somebody like all the places that uh, everybody's supposed to be on the football field. Cause I don't understand it. <laughs> so despite that displeasure with his portrayal in the movie or stated that he likes the film's message of perseverance and the general treatment of the Tui family and has been quoted as saying, it's a great story. It seems like they helped me get to this point. They're my family. And without them, I wouldn't be here. They taught me a lot of things, show me a lot of different things. It shows that if you help somebody and give somebody a chance, chance and don't judge people, look where they can get to. So there's a lot more that I could have included. I didn't want to bog this down with a discussion about this movie. But I mean, there's a lot of like with most movies that are based, quote unquote, based on a true story. A lot of web pages dedicated to separating the reality from the bullshit. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll leave that up to you if you're you meaning you listener. For those of you that are truly interested in that extra research, but the film feels more like a story about Leanne Tui and less than a story about Michael Orr. So that's my biggest beef with the movie. But as I said, we're not here to talk about the movie. So back to Bullock. Her performance here isn't anything special. It isn't transformative. It doesn't feel lived in. It doesn't feel like she gets the the gamut of emotions. It's not unique. It's seldom moving. I mean, the script is trash and it doesn't do Saunders' performance any favors. Everything about this movie is predictable. Her reactions to the other characters' behavior. I mean, I was calling out lines of dialogue before they were said, Not maybe not verbatim, but pretty damn close. And while I don't know Tui, obviously, the real-life woman has got to be more interesting than the sassy 2D die job that the script creates and that Bullock attempts to animate. I mean, I guess we could give her a little bit of credit here that I, I did enjoy watching her as you did. Give me a minute, Bert. We're in the middle of practice, Leanne. You can thank me later. Michael, do you remember when we first met and we went to that horrible part of town to buy you those dreadful clothes? And I was a little bit scared and you told me not to worry about it because you had my back. Do you remember that? Yes, ma'am. And if anyone tried to get to me, you would have stopped them, right? And when you and SJ were in that car wreck, what did you do to the airbag? Stopped it. You stopped it. You stopped it. This team is your family, Michael. You have to protect them from those guys, okay? Listen. Okay. Tony here's your quarterback, all right? You protect his blind side. When you look at him, you think of me, how you have my back, how you have his, okay? All right, Tony, go back. All right. Oompa Lumpy here is your tailback. When you look at him, you think of SJ and how you've never let anyone or anything hurt him. You understand me? All right, go back. Got it? What about Collins and Mr. Tui? Fine, they can be on the team too. Are you gonna protect the family, Michael? Yes, ma'am. Good boy, then go have some fun. Yelling at him doesn't work, Bert. Doesn't trust men. In his experience, they pretend to care about you till they disappear. But anyway, this movie made nearly $310 million. God, post-lockdown, man, it's hard to think of those numbers happening. Mm-hmm. But I think that's one of the big reasons that, that she got the award, because the movie was popular on top of the fact it made people feel good. This movie is nothing special. Hollywood does have a way of patting itself on the back when it comes to race relations, despite it not being open about how specifically inclusive it actually is. But all that aside, um, I agree with you. It reminds me of what you said about Helena Bonham Carter. 
Carter in the King speech when he said, I feel like she could roll out of bed and do this part. If we did a course correction for Miss Bullock's Oscar career, I would want to take it away for the blind side, which may, if the Academy is playing politics, as we know that they do, have her more in the race for the award in 2014, which ultimately went to Kate Blanchett for Woody, I Married My Daughter Alan's Blue Jasmine, have it go to her for gravity, which I think she put way more work into. This is Sandra Bullock with a Southern accent, and we've seen Sandra Bullock with a Southern accent in a variety of her movies. She plays this subtle, a little downgraded. I've seen this Sandra before. I love this Sandra. I will watch this Sandra. Sandra will always put my butt in a seat, but I just liked her in this film. I don't think she should have been nominated nor had this film in the top 10, especially when it was not nominated for any other achievements. Are we saying Sandra Bullock was so good, so good in this movie that it was one of the best pictures of the year that this performance catapulted this movie? No. Here's a question for you. Yes. I think you kind of already answered it, but you're talking about the 2014 race against uh, Blanchett. Her role in Gravity would be the one that you'd give her the Oscar for. Mm -hmm. Was she nominated? For Gravity, yes. Okay. She was nominated twice in her career, and it was for The Blind Side and Gravity. Oh, because I was just about to ask if she was nominated as the the racist wife having a existential crisis in one of the worst Best Picture winners of all time, Crash. All right. So, Sandra, we're taking the Oscar away. So now we've got it. Sorry, Sandy. Now we got it, and uh, now we got to go through the others. Meryl Streep. The Wayne Gretzky of Oscar records, Mrs. Meryl Streep. Meryl, what can I say? That like most people in the world, I have been in love with you for years. That the two movies we did together were the highlights of my career. (laughs) That, That you were brilliant in both of them, as you are in everything. That the mantle of most acclaimed film actress of our time could not be worn with more grace and humility. But everyone already knows that. What they don't know is your kindness, your collaborative nature, your great good humor. Those things make you a dream to work with and a wonderful friend. It is in the area of awards and accolades, however, that you show a certain, how can I say this, a certain selfishness (laughs) that is unseemly. That is why I have spearheaded a movement in the Academy to cap the number of nominations per actor at 16. Which means that this could be the last time that anyone will have to stand up here and say, despite their personal feelings, that Meryl Streep is quite simply the best. And here she portrays Julia Childs, the woman who taught us to cook. But in reality, I'm not very good at cooking. Like, I can't taste something and be like, it needs more of this. My wife can do that expertly. She's like, you put too much cumin in or you didn't put enough salt in or whatever it is. I can't do that. It's all about one, A, confidence, and two, about what you like. One time I made chicken and dumpling. Full disclosure, I was a little bit inebriated at the time. And I was like so proud of myself. And my wife was like, it's a little garlicky. And I was like, really? I think it's delicious. (laughs) The next day I I went and reheated some. (laughs) It was, 
she was being really kind. Not only was it a little garlicky, <laughs> it was like the most garlicky thing I'd ever had. I was like, oh, I put three cloves in it. It was a big crock pot of chicken and dumplings. I put three cloves. That's it. This is like the most powerful garlic. This would have killed generations of vampires. I've taught plenty of people how to cook. <laughs> and number one, it's confidence, right? Like that's, you're not going to get anywhere if you're not confident that you know what you're doing. And the easiest way to get confidence is to figure out how to cook one dish and make it your favorite dish and then break that dish down into the flavors and then take those flavors somewhere else. Once you master that one dish and you master what those flavors are going to do and why you like those flavors, then the entire world of cooking is open up to you. I have a couple dishes that I'm really good at making, but separating the flavors sounds impossible to me. I'm not like a complete moron. I'm not like trying to like put cinnamon on fucking like ground beef or something, but you know what I mean? I mean, that's what they do in Cincinnati for their chili. So, oh, well, look at me. Accident <laughs> accidentally a genius, a Cincinnati genius. All right, moving on. I think that's a nice little story. And, and it like works because we're about to talk about cooking. So in the film, Julie and Julia, the f it toggles between two stories, which I think is really kind of cool. It's the stories of two American women separated by half a century, but linked across time by Child's unmatched cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And I got to say, the first time I watched this 10 plus years ago, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't cooking almost ever. But in the ensuing decade plus, I've gotten my, I found my chops a little bit. And after watching it the second time, I kind of want to buy this book. I was looking at it on, um, on Amazon, but I don't want to make any of those, those things. Well, I'm a challenge junkie. And so the Julia Policines like really spoke to me that she was going to take the challenge on of cooking every recipe in that book in the span of a year. I was like, should I do that? <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's not completely left my realm of possibility. Um, at the end where it's like, it's, it's almost like a beef Wellington, you know, where it's like meat inside of a dough. And then there's oh, like yeah, little yeah, flower yeah. petals around like that. And it's a perfectly buttered crust. I was like, I want to know what that tastes like. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, maybe. Um, it's like almost looks like a, f I don't know who did it first, but it looks like the Indian dish biryani kind of done the exact same way. You know what I think I could make no problem because it's like just kind of throw shit together and let it simmer is the, the boof bourguignon. I think I could make, <laughs> I think I could make that no problem, but it's not really a summer food. It's kind of more like it should be cold outside. You should have a nice dark beer to drink with it. But I liked the cooking portions of the film. The second time is my point. And I don't want to talk, like I said, I don't want to talk as much about the movie and just focus on the performance, but I do want to say, I don't care about the Julia Powell scenes. I, she is a brat. Maybe it's because I'm kind of like coming off of my Amy Adams high, but I was just like, cut back to Meryl, cut back to Meryl. The story is, her story is uninteresting. Streep's performance here earned her the 16th of 21 total nominations. That's putting together Best Supporting Actress as well as Actress. And she's fine. But the performance was really an imitation after you boil it all down. What should I do, do you think? About what? I don't really want to go back into government work. Mm -hmm. you know, but shouldn't I find something to do? Wives don't do anything here. That's not me. This is not me. I, know. I saw a notice on the bulletin board at the embassy for hat making lessons. You like hats? I do. I do. I do. 
What is it that you really like to do? Eat. <laughs> I like to do. I know. I know. I know. And we are so good at it. Look at you. Now, They're growing in front of you. So the most interesting scenes are when we see um, the childs that you didn't get to see on television. Not me specifically. I mean, I've never seen The French Chef, but I would watch it if it was streaming somewhere. I would, and just as a purely out of complete total curiosity, I would want to see this woman that is, you know, such a, a fixture in so many people's minds. And I haven't obviously read the book, but when she shows the moments of off-screen vulnerability, especially that part when she finds out that her sister is pregnant. And they never, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't ever mention that she or he or the two of them cannot have children. But it is completely evident. And that part, I almost dropped some salt water on that part. It's it's subtle. It's subtly done. I think it's first introduced when they're walking by a couple with the stroller. Yeah. She just but even then, like they don't say anything. She just glances kind of longingly at that the, the mother. Mm-hmm. So anyway... That's when Streep is at her best in this movie. But, you know, this nomination is just, it's the old guard. It's like, hey, she did a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's its frustrating. You know, like when we go through and we see the Emily Blunts and the Abby Cornishes of the world, this is Streep and Adams. So, you know, I'm showing up for it, especially as a Nora Ephron script. And as of this year, like I'm trying to read all of Nora Ephron's scripts. And this is her final one. The late Nora Ephron, I guess I should say. It was fascinating to see the camera work to make Meryl Streep appear to have Julia Child's stature. I don't know how big Meryl Streep is or how I know that's not what you say. Um, I don't know how tall Meryl Streep is. Is in real life, but to watch her maneuver table around tables and whatnot, they make reference in the film that she had her countertop specially made to raise them up. Her sister, Jane Lynch, in the film, and actually as somebody that has stood next to Jane Lynch while waiting for my suitcase at LAX, I can tell you that I am a short male <laughs> comparatively. And Jane Lynch is probably one of my favorite things about this movie. But her charisma is always great. There's something I do not like about Streep. And I think we're going to take this all the way back to the transformation conversation is that she falls back on old habits when conveying emotions, which reminds me we are watching Meryl Streep play a part and not necessarily seeing Meryl Streep lose herself in a role. She always exasperately rolls her eyes in the same way. She always laughs into her shoulder. It's no matter how good she is in almost everything she does. She has these ticks, much like, say, a Leonardo DiCaprio has that, that same break in his voice, or George Clooney with the way that he moves his neck, or Emma Stone. They have these things about them where you just wish Daniel Day-Lewis didn't retire, and I'm sick of bringing up his name. I need another actor well, for my references. You know what I thought about when you said this? This, I mean, I would agree with you. I think DiCaprio, I think it's great that DiCaprio has kind of slowed down with the amount of movies that he's making, because I was getting some serious leo fatigue i still haven't even watched the revenant i can't bring myself to do it i just don't give a shit i've rented it like three times i don't care i see it with clooney and i see it with emma stone but i like i i'm I'm never tired of meryl streep it just in the same way the person that i thought of immediately because i just got done i went on a little mini binge i watched malcolm x i watched courage under fire i watched the bone collector what's the other i watched another one Oh, Flight. I watched Flight finally for the first time. Jesus Christ. You want to talk about somebody that falls back on this kind of the same emotional t- ticks? It's Denzel. But I do not, I do not tire of it with him. 
just as I don't tire of it with street. But I see what you're saying. Well, you're not seeing a whole lot of growth necessarily. Correct. And it's not necessarily like I want to nominate her for Academy Awards for it. I just, she would be a shoe in if there wasn't five great performances that year. Right. And so I feel like upon the research, we found a couple more actresses that might have been able to take the mantle. I love Meryl Streep, but I would be interested to go through her 21 nominations and, you know, really, really look at that year and look at the other performances that were given that year and wonder if the Academy Award were just lazy in their nominations because Meryl Streep did another movie and they went, yep, her. And whether or not she deserves, well, no, she deserves 21 nominations because she's a great actress. Whether or not somebody else got slated out because their name wasn't Meryl Streep that year. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's that whole old guard. Um, Speaking as far as the, the imitations are concerned, her very next nomination, which also won her her third and most recent Oscar was another uh, imitative performance where she played Margaret Margaret Thatcher in The Iron Lady, which I haven't seen it. I would rather watch The Post, which I also haven't seen, than The Iron Lady. I just don't. I, I'm tired of seeing tired of seeing actors be like, "Oh, I'm going to embody this." Like you give Gary Oldman Best Actor for The Finest Hour or Darkest Hour. No, no interest. I've, I have no interest in watching you know a big budget social studies movie. <laughs> <laughs> And I think Gillian Anderson, when she came out with her role as Margaret Thatcher, you kind of had a second guess, Meryl Streep and the Iron Lady. All right. So we both think that Streep is good in this movie, but we have reservations because we're worried that she's taking up space. That sounds terrible. <laughs> she's taking <laughs> she's taking up nominative space where we think, you know, maybe some of these new folks should start to build their resumes a little bit more and you know can Meryl Streep just chill out for a second maybe (laughs) all right moving on let's talk next about Carrie Mulligan um Carrie Mulligan has fallen in love with me twice actually uh not with me personally but with the characters I played uh once on stage opposite her and then once in the film which she's nominated tonight I'm afraid I treated her badly I'm sorry, Carrie, I should have told you that I was married, but uh, <laughs> out of her amazing depth, grace, and intelligence came unforgettable portraits of heartbreak and complexity. Her performance in an education is indeed just that. We are lucky that she is so young because we have a lifetime of her work to look forward to. Being honored is still strange to you, I imagine. But given what she's already shown us, it's something you're going to have to get used to, darling. Last season, we talked briefly about her uh, her being Carrie Mulligan's Oscar-nominated performance in Promising Young Woman. We were both, I think it was, wasn't long enough for us both to digest the film. I think you're still pretty steadfast in your feelings about it. But what we both agree on is that her performance here in this movie, An Education, is much better. These are both great roles. Um, and it's kind of strange to think that the same actress got both of these roles. Do they feel linked to you at all? They feel linked to me. Uh, no, I don't see it. But You don't see it? You're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> Boy, you really hate Promising Young Woman. Yeah, I don't know. They feel linked. I guess I'm alone on that one. But Mulligan's good. I mean, the whole movie is really good. Her performance in particular feels really effortless. And it's it's kind of odd because I did a little Mulligan research. She's not ever really been on my radar. 
I've seen movies with her, but you know, I'm not a huge fan of Drive. Moreover, her role in Drive is completely forgettable. I thought she was played a pretty good Daisy in what was not a good adaptation of my favorite novel or one of my favorite novels, The Great Gatsby. Um, but here, she's so young. Uh, I think she maybe had three films under her belt at this point, the most popular of which was um, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice, which I don't even remember her in. But here, she's got the benefit of an excellent script, an excellent direction, and just surrounded by terrific actors. She's able to be effortlessly vulnerable and naturally funny and come off as just very sharp. Um, and the people around her just make her better. Uh, Olivia, uh, Olivia Williams, Alfred Molina, Emma Thompson. I don't know who Pike and Seymour are. And you know what, man? I think she wipes the floor with Sarsgaard. Every scene that she's in with him. I just never understood the fuss over him. And Hornsby's script or Barber's memoirs provide for Mulligan some really, truly excellent monologues, which she delivers with every ounce of her heart. How far advanced are these ridiculous plans? Have you set a date? Have you decided on a church? We won't be getting married in a church. David's Jewish. Jewish? He's a Jew. You are aware, I take it, that the Jews killed our Lord. And you're aware, I suppose, that our Lord was Jewish. I suppose he told you that. We're all very sorry about what happened during the war, but that's absolutely no excuse for that sort of malicious and untruthful propaganda. Anyway, I can see you're far more in need of responsible advice than I realized. Nobody does anything worth doing without a degree. Nobody does anything worth doing with a degree. No woman, anyway. So what I do isn't worth doing, or what Miss Stubbs does, or Mrs. Wilson, or any of us here. Because none of us would be here without a degree. You do realize that, don't you? And yes, of course, studying is hard and boring. Boring? I'm sorry? Studying is hard and boring. Teaching is hard and boring. So what you're telling me is to be bored and then bored and finally bored again, but this time for the rest of my life. This whole stupid country is bored. There's no life in it or colour or fun. It's probably just as well the Russians are going to drop a nuclear bomb on us any day now. So my choice is to do something hard and boring or to marry my Jew and go to Paris and Rome and listen to jazz and read and eat good food in nice restaurants and have fun. It's not enough to educate us anymore, Miss Walters. You've got to tell us why you're doing it. It doesn't have to be teaching, you know. There's a civil service. I don't wish to be impertinent, Miss Walters, but it is an argument worth rehearsing. You never know. Someone else might want to know the point of it all one day. Quick disagree with Sarsgaard is that I I really like him. I find him very natural. Harmless, but I feel like... To me, he's just one of those. What I, I don't think I would ever watch a film that he was carrying himself. But in the same instance, like put him in a room, kind of like Young Victoria. Young Victoria has Paul Bettany, and he gets you know there's no love for his role in that film. 
But because he's on the screen, he's in the room, I'm kind of trusting what's going on. And I think I feel the same way when it comes to Sarsgaard. To me, I think I'm going to show my cards a little early here and just say that I think this is the second best performance of the year with Carrie Mulligan. And I'm glad we took a little extra time when preparing for this episode because I was going to come down hard on Carrie Mulligan because I still had because the bitter taste in my mouth. Or promising yeah, young promising young woman. <laughs> <laughs> here's the, so here's the thing with Carrie Mulligan. She has the doe-eyed female look down. And I think, you know, like she plays it really well when it comes to Daisy. I think like when I think of Great Gatsby, before I think of anything else in that movie, I think about when she turns around on the sofa and looks up at the camera, aka Toby Maguire's character. That like that's what I think of Carrie Mulligan. Is that you, my lovely? Daisy Buchanan, the golden girl. A breathless warmth flowed from her, a promise that there was no one else in the world she so wanted to see. Do they miss me in Chicago? Uh, yes, um, um, at least a dozen people send their love. How gorgeous. They're absolutely in mourning. They're crying. No, yes, they're I don't wailing. They're I don't screaming. believe you. They're shouting, Daisy Buchanan, we can't live without you. I'm paralyzed with happiness. And so when it came to an education, I thought of the same thing. But an education is probably her best written role. It allows you to see what she is capable of. It allows you to see the breadth of emotions that she can portray on screen. Promising Young Woman does not. <laughs> and going back and watching her in, in an education, she has what it takes to command the screen and command a movie, which I forgot about while watching her in Promising Young Woman. But I think this is one of her best performances, more deserving of an Oscar than Miss Bullock. And I think she outshines everybody, but the person that we're going to talk about at the end. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty damn good movie too. I mean, I would say apart from maybe like the final five to six to seven minutes where everything works out super duper quick, which is nice. I mean, nothing wrong with the happy ending and it is based on the memoirs of uh, Ms. Barber. Yeah, she's fantastic in this movie and I would I would put her so far if we're going to show our cards, I would put her above. No, you know what? I'm going to wait because I think it would be fun to rank them at the end. Um, <laughs> okay, so that takes us to the next nomination. Helen Mirren. Every British prime minister should end up in a relationship with a wonderful queen. I had that privilege in the Oscar-nominated Best Picture where Helen Mirren won for Best Actress for her portrayal of Elizabeth II. Now, I spent a lot of time on the set with Helen, and after a while, a thought kept reoccurring. Is it wrong to be so wildly attracted to a queen? I mean, she was Elizabeth, but then after a few hours, uh, the makeup would start to wear off and her spiderweb tattoo would start to appear on her hand, which, of course, only made her even hotter. <laughs> Royalty with a tattoo, brilliant. And this past year, she somehow matched that amazing performance with another one, playing the Countess Sophia in The Last Station. She showed us a woman's guile and heart and pride and desperation, a portrayal that only comes from an actress with immense talent and one who is never afraid to take a risk. It is that combination, Helen, of talent and courage, and yes, that tattoo, 
that makes you our queen, our countess, and an Oscar nominee. Congratulations. Have you ever read or even heard of Gilbert and Gubar's feminist text, The Mad Woman in the Attic? No. More or less, it just says it's. it was kind of like the introduction of the angel versus monster female. It was basically the way men wrote women. I believe uh, one of the quotes that Virginia Woolf had that inspired this text, which came out, in, I think, in 1979, Woolf said that by male authors, women have been killed into art. She's so cool. I love everything about Virginia Woolf. She was such a fucking badass. But that's what if this... Let me back up. I feel like this movie should have been really good. I think all the parts are there, and I cannot tell why it didn't work for me. It just didn't. I think one of the things that I can pinpoint is there is a lot of overacting. And even though she's good, Mirren is guilty too. It's a very over the top. All their all the performances are just way over the top. But as I said at the beginning, made me think of that feminist text, The Mad Woman in the Attic. She is treated as, and this is historically correct, according to Tolstoyan biographers, that she was very difficult to live with um, towards the end of Leo Tolstoy's life. And as such, she is treated as this dangerous, unhinged burden of a woman that the audience is supposed to find difficult to trust and even like. So her name is Sophia. As I said, this takes place sort of in the twilight of Tolstoy's life when as this older man, he became a bit of a Russian philosopher and or religious figure. People started celebrating him for these things that he was writing in the latter half of his career, where he was kind of taking on sort of an Emersonian like essay form. You know, I'm not a Tolstoy expert by any means. Have you read any of his shit? Uh, no, not I. Okay. So, anywho, I don't want to go on and on about it, but I mean, the guy is essentially treated as a living deity. He's got like followers creating these self-sustaining villages near his estate. He's surrounded by admirers, none of whom criticize him in any way. Um, he keeps talking about, oh, we have to, we're trying to do this. I, I want, this is what I'm trying to do. And they're helping me. I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. So what is he trying to do? Before watching this movie, I'd never heard of this, but it seems that his political aspirations brought him to a point where he was so popular that he was respected and revered by the Russian people, by his literary contemporaries, even by Mahatma Gandhi himself. And he began creating this way of life, I guess, from a flexible interpretation of Christianity, uh, which he based in five maxims. Love your enemies, do not be angry, do not fight evil with evil, but return evil with good. And this is kind of what Gandhi really liked about him was that passive resistance. Do not lust, do not take oath without belaboring this any further, sort of in the same way that Harper Lee in her extreme old age and dementia was more than likely conjoled into handing over the manuscript for Ghost Set a Watchman, Tolstoy here has possibly fallen victim to the same kinds of opportunists. They want to rewrite his will in order to make all of his writing, the royalties, public domain so that the Russian, all Russian people can enjoy his texts. It's not totally clear if Tolstoy is getting taken so to speak. But Sophia is convinced. And she loves her husband, but she's consumed by resentment for his little tribe. And she points out the ludicrous nature of all these Tolstoyans and their misplaced adoration for, for her husband. But she cannot deny the hold that he has on them or the hold that they have on him. So she's forced to be manipulative and tricky to try to get her way. And what she wants... She wants to make sure that 
she and all of her 13 children that she bore him are set up after he's gone. And he is in the midst of renouncing personal property and giving money away and all this shit. So obviously, Mirren's character is intended to be polarizing. She loves him with severity and brutish passion. And when he leaves her towards the end of the movie to go and die, more or less, we see in this scene just how much she needs him. And it's the most over-the-top scene in the movie. She just goes wailing out of the house out to the pond to kill herself, which she doesn't do successfully, but. Do you truly think that she is fit to control the final disposition of this will? Well, I don't, I don't. How dare oh, Stop! What are you doing? You're all plotting against me in my own house too. I bear you 13 children. How can you betray me like this? Somebody help me up. Go ahead. Go ahead. Why don't you give everything we've got to him? Your fat little chattermite. Who will he be, my dearest darling, my Vladimir Grigorovich? My wife's heart on a platter, her, her kidneys with salt. But of course, my dear Chodkov, whatever pleases you. The China, the estate's permanent copyright on anything I've ever written. Oh, anything for you, my love. Very little restraint in this part on Mirren's behalf. Over the top with everything. The second half of the film, she reins herself in a little bit, except for that scene where she calls her daughter a bitch and says that she wishes that the kid had died in utero. I want to see my husband. He's too weak to see you now, Mother. Not too weak to see you. Not too weak to see that. Do you really want to do this here? So I am the leper outside the gate while he sleeps with the devil himself. Chertkov is here because Father asked him to be here. Is that true? Yes. Well, did you tell him that, that I nearly drowned in the pond? We didn't need to. It's been in all the papers. Please, let me take you back. What did he say? He said that if you killed yourself, he'd be upset. He'd be upset? Horribly upset. But that he could not have acted other than he did. husband he's not your husband oh you're unbearable and you are a stone-hearted bitch of a daughter <laughs> i lost five children why couldn't one of them have been you <laughs> surrounded by reporters and the one reporter's like did she just really say that <laughs> i couldn't stop laughing at that part um so anyway i i think if I'm going to be nice to the movie, I like the film's opening scene uh, where he is snoring. Tolstoy is laying on his back snoring and she sidles up to him to try to cuddle with him and he will not wake up and stop snoring. And she keeps saying, my love, my darling. And she keeps putting his hand and arm over her and he's not, it just keeps falling off and he keeps snoring. So then in the end of the film, you have this very poignant scene where she finally gets to see him after like, go, come back go come back which was so stupid 
they have this moment on his deathbed where she he can't even speak anymore, but she speaks both sides of this conversation. I don't know what this movie wanted me to care about. Right. What am I here for? What am I learning from this movie? Other than, you know, like I have never, you asked me if I read Tolstoy. No, never have. Everything about his life, I was learning about it. But in the same instance, I didn't know necessarily why I should care about this character. And I started thinking about the movie The Master with Philip Seymour Hoffman, because it kind of has some of the same setup to it, you know, like a man creating a commune of people who believe in his, you know, it's almost seen as like the second coming of Jesus with his teachings. And I think there's even a line in the last station where Helen Mirren looks at one of his followers and he's like, do you believe he's Jesus? And the guy's like, yeah. <laughs> I believe Jesus speaks through him. I can hear, Correct. I can hear God's words in his words. Right. But in the same, like, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Helen Mirren is another one, you know, always good. She she commands the screen well. After watching this movie, I wondered if this was in part, as we have learned that back in the day, very recently, the voting members of the Academy, on average, were 60-year-old white voters. And I feel like when it comes to everything about this movie, this spoke to them, and it was completely lost on me. Fair. I think the only two people recognized by the Academy in this for this movie... Uh, was Christopher Plummer as Best Supporting Actor and Helen Mirren as Best Actress. And for me, it was a James McAvoy piece. I think he was really good in it. I think he outshined both of those. He didn't last very long, you know, with that whole celibacy thing. Felt like his like <laughs> second night there. That girl well, was just good like, for him. Like, that was one of those day. things where they're like, you have to give up this. And I was like, no, <laughs> for, for what? <laughs> well, enough on that, which brings us to the final nominee, which is... Um, Gabri Sidibe. My name is Clarice Precious Jones. I want to be on the cover of a magazine. I wish I had a light-skinned boyfriend with real nice hair. But first, I want to be in one of them BET videos. You're a dummy. Don't nobody want you. Don't nobody need you. School ain't gonna help none. Take your ass down to the welfare. 16, you're still in junior high school, and you're pregnant with your second child. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about home? But you're gonna have to talk to somebody if you want your check, sweetie. People tell me my life Precious, I'm hungry. You plan on putting some food in that frying pan? My favorite color is purple. I sing well, and I'm here because I love to teach. I'm Joanne. My favorite color is fluorescent beige, and I'm here to get my GED. Clarice, something you do well? Nothing. Everybody's good at something. Precious! You gonna stand up there and look down at me like you're a woman? You don't know what real women do. Real women sacrifice. Now smile about that, you fat bitch! talk about the abuse in your household. You know what I'm talking about. You sit there and judge me and you write them notes on your pad about who you think I am. Gabourey Sidibe. She was a student trying to earn some money to go to college. On Monday, she skipped school to audition for a movie called Precious. 
On Tuesday, they called her back to meet the director, Lee Daniels. On Wednesday, she got the part. And tonight, she is sitting at the Academy Awards in the same category as Meryl Streep. I tell you, if that isn't a Hollywood fairy tale, what is? The authenticity, Gabby, with which you played the harsh, brutal moments in our movie Precious, where did that come from? The transformation from your own, your own joyous, positive, radiant, fun self to the heartbreaking despair of that girl, Precious. Where did you learn how to do that? When we look at you, we see a true American Cinderella on the threshold of a brilliant new career. And Precious is but the first of many adjectives coming your way. And they are all great. Congratulations, Gabby Citadel. So watch Sidibe, who is discovered in this open call audition out of nowhere. And to see Oprah Winfrey talking about her on the Academy Awards stage and saying her life is like a fairy tale. And Oprah doesn't reference herself, but in the back of my mind, I'm like being talked about by Oprah fucking Winfrey. Like the story of Sidibe is amazing. And not only that, but her performances. She won the role over 300 people nationwide, despite having no prior acting experience. In Precious, Sidibe played the main character, Clarice Precious Jones, a 16-year-old mother of two, the result of her being raped by her father, who tries to escape abuse at the hands of her mother. This movie is hard. And I know when we put this episode up on the board, you're like, gosh, I don't want to revisit that movie. It's almost like Requiem for a Dream in a Way, where it was good on the first viewing. It is tough to want to sit down and watch again just because of how good how good it is, how well put together it is, how great the performances are across the board. So hard, in fact, when showing it at Cannes, Lee Daniels had second thoughts showing French people what life was like for inner city American youth. Everything about this movie is raw, dirty, and real. And before we even get into her acting, I think we need to talk about Sidibe's bravery to take on this role. It reminds me of any actress that stepped up to, to the plate to play Neil Laboot's Fat Pig, a play that's hard to stomach for a lot of people, but where anyone can simply not understate how amazing any actress is that bears herself like that for an audience. And Sidibe is no exception here. Sidibe said in 2012 that before she was hired for the 2009 film Precious, she was advised by John Cusack not to pursue the entertainment industry, advising Sidibe to quit the business. It's quote unquote, so image conscious. Here she is, 26 years old, staring down the most ruthless business in the face. And once you watch the movie, you can see her talent on top of that. The character of Precious is, to borrow a phrase from the blind side, an onion. She is closed off. She extremely doubts herself. She has dealt with more pain in her 16 years than I have in my 38. The only times we get to see her happy for most of the film is in her daydreams. Anytime she is happy in reality, it is very short-lived as her mother hates to see her daughter happy. Anytime 
time she smiles in this movie, there is a skillet being thrown at her head. It is heartbreaking. Sidibe plays this role, stifling all of her emotions because she doesn't want to show anything. But even though she is not showing anything on the surface, you can feel it boiling inside of her. Yeah, dude. When she kicks, when she kicks the sandal or the whatever that was, the slipper, when her mom mm-hmm. is yelling at her, the second time I watched that. I was like, oh, no, don't do it. Don't kick it. But that's like, yeah. I mean, she's so repressed around her mother the entire film. That's like one of the rare instances or when she ducks the skillet that her mom goes to hit her with. Instead of telling her mom, like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) She, She has these little moments of physical movements that are manifest her emotions. And I wonder if it was a little bit of the Academy overlooking her because they didn't know who the real person was, which in the same instance, we talked about Borat nomination for Maria Bakalova, because I was like, I don't know who she is in real life. This this might be her. Perhaps all the voters were like, ah, maybe Sidibe is just a quiet person. And then when you saw her doing the interviews and whatnot, she is a very happy person. So, so to see her so miserable in this role, she is acting her ass off. She's not just a one note character here either. She, from childbirth to being abused, to being raped, to having fun with her friends in class, to shutting down because she is told she is HIV positive, to daydreaming of being a star. This put this role put Sidibe through the ringer. She played every emotion in the rainbow. Add on top of that, makeup and costumes accentuating her quote-unquote flaws, the DP and director preferring close-ups so one can't hide anything, any false note, which isn't... I mean, Mariah Carey is playing amazingly here. Nobody can hide in this film. And they all did wonderfully with Sidibe leading the cause. Excuse me. Let's say I'm HIV positive. I ain't got nothing to write today. Is your baby okay? Yeah, I, I just gotta stop breastfeeding him. I remember you once told me you never really got to tell your story. Right? Fuck you! Y'all know nothing what I've been through! I ain't never had no boyfriend. My daddy said he gonna marry me. How you gonna do that with fucking me illegal? For yourself and for the people who love you. Nobody loved me. People do love you, precious. Please don't lie to me, Miss Rain. Love ain't done nothing for me. Love beat me, raped me, call me an animal, make me feel worthless, make me sick. That wasn't love, precious. Your baby loves you. I love you. Right. 
It's a script that doesn't pander character to the audience. I don't think you can deny that this is the most outstanding performance given for the year. The realest, the rawest, the highest risk, the lowest reward. Everybody was good in this film. Sidibe, no exception. And here's here's the thought before I turn the mic over to you. This film, like I said, catapulted Sidibe all the way to the Academy Awards stage. What if, when I say high risk, low reward, what if she put herself through everything? Because there's nothing guaranteed in this industry. There's not even a guarantee that once filming wraps that the film is going to see the light of day. There was a good chance that Sidibe puts herself through all of this and the film is never shown. And because I had this thought probably two nights ago, I can't get it out of my head of how much she put herself through for the enjoyment of all of us in the audience. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that Sidibe was selected out of out of the blue. Well, I mean, you've already spoken for all the best parts. I want to talk about how spectacular of a performance it is for someone that's never acted on film before. You brought it up. But I mean, her lines are delivered with such confidence. She feels comfortable despite all of the uncomfortable things happening to her. I sense no pretense in her performance. I mean, the other end of that spectrum would be Amy Adams and Glenn Close screaming at each other in um, the hillbilly story or whatever that shit is. When she's scared and angry, when she's giggly and laughing, when she's breastfeeding Abdul, it all feels real. And that's sounds cliche, but it, it almost feels in part like you're watching a documentary sometimes. I don't know why. Why don't more directors cast unknowns? I mean, what? They want to be able to sell their movies. So you got to throw a, um, somebody w- with star power who can draw people to the theater. But Precious still made almost $70 million, which is fucking nuts for such a dark film. I think directors, if they're scared of of not being able to sell their movie, or maybe they're scared of having to hold an actor's hand too much who doesn't, you know, know how to hit their mark or doesn't understand what coverage is or all these this stuff or what a, what a day on set really looks like. Wh- whatever the reason is, it really sucks because there should be way more instances of this, in my opinion. I've been trying to figure out like how and why this movie feels so antithetical to the blind side. So is it a better movie because it, it's about a poor black person that doesn't feature a white savior? Is it a better movie because it's more truthful than Blindside? Is it a better movie because it's just a better movie? I mean, the editing, you brought up the fantasy sequences. I mean, the editing and cutting together of what I'm assuming is just feels like these moments where she's having PTSD flashbacks. It's such a more, I don't want to say artful. It's just interesting. It's visually engaging. Whereas the blind side just feels like you're watching a sitcom. So I don't know. What do you think? The blind side is nothing on the special. Like how many sports movies come out a year that spend two weeks in the theater and then go nowhere. That's the blind side to me. It doesn't say anything new. You asked if it was because Precious feels more truthful. I feel like that is a big part of it, considering the fact that everything about the blind side feels structured and designed to tell a story in a particular way, where everything about Precious is not necessarily saying like, this is how we want you to feel about this moment. It's more so saying this is how reality is and take from it what you will. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't have that like beat by beat, like, okay, we've solved getting him into our house. Now we have to solve, he 
doesn't understand. He wants to go and sit at the table and have dinner. Okay. Now we have to actually, you know, adopt him. Now we have to get him on the foot. We have to get his grades up. Now we have to get him on the football team. Oh, he doesn't understand how to play football. Now we have to, yeah, it's very beat by beat. And that's kind of a little bit ancillary to what I was talking about, where like Precious just feels more like a documentary and or story feels more like a fairy tale. I just have a hard time accepting fairy tales. Although my friend Paul tells me that this sort of thing happens all the time, that a young male with athletic potential gets taken in by a surrogate family who provides entirely for their success. He's more of a sports fan than me, so I'm going to take his word for it. But I guess Precious just seems more realistic. And you said that and we've been repeating it and belaboring it. But this is despite the fact that by Sapphire's own admission, the story is not autobiographical. She says that the level of abuse that she suffered is not nearly as extreme as in the book and that there is no character in the story, not even the teacher who is based on her. Rather, Precious is a composite character, she says, created from the real life story she encountered while teaching for seven years from 1987 to 1993 in an adult literacy program in Harlem. So I was under the impression that this was a true story about the author. I don't know if I assumed that or if what. I don't think it matters. It is instead tribute to and an illustration of these many kids that she met and taught for her time um, at that school in Harlem, all condensed into one character. She talks about students with children with Down syndrome who admitted to her that they were conceived through incest, a girl who admits to her that she just found out that she was HIV positive, a very overweight girl who is too scared to open her mouth. But in her opinion, all of these kids that she created, precious based upon, the the point is freedom through literacy, empowerment through learning to read and learning to write and learning to express oneself. And that was where she found the common thread between all of her students and herself, that it was through writing and it was through personal exploration through writing that she came out of her own trauma. So I don't ever want to watch it again. It's just so fucking, (laughs) it's so shattering, man. I don't want to watch The Blind Side again either. But quite honestly, if you were to hand me The Blind Side and Precious, I'd have a tough time choosing between which one I wanted to watch. Because I'll admit, Blindside made me feel happy. But, you know, there's a hollowness there. So. Blindside does make you feel happy until you realize that if if you're Michael Orr watching that film and they're trying to tell you that, like, an eight-year-old boy taught you how to play football <laughs> <laughs> with condiments at the table. You know, like, I, I would be irate <laughs> if this is how they told my story. It's kind of like along the same lines as the United States versus Billie Holiday, where I'm like, I hope nobody makes a film about me considering the fact that like they could take their artistic license, but put your name on it. I don't like it. I don't like that part. We're here to take the Oscar away from Sandra Bullock. What we, what happened with Precious for best supporting actress is Monique won and talking about, you know, people that, uh, weren't even invited to the Academy Awards the previous year that are taking over the stage. Monique is one of them where I don't think like she probably ever thought that she would get an Academy Award. This performance by her is mesmerizing as it is awful. And not only her, Paula Patton as the teacher with just was amazing. I really want to speak up for Mariah Carey though here because Mariah Carey gets a lot of shit in daily life and nobody in my circle or in on TMZ or whatnot I feel like every time Mariah, Mariah Carey is brought up, they should be like, but did you see her in Precious? Because yeah. she is amazing in this film. You know who originally had that role and walked away from it? Uh-uh. Helen Mirren. Really? The the counselor? According or the to- the social services? 
Yep. According to IMDb trivia, another piece that I found on there was that Mariah Carey was not supposed to cry in that scene, but she was so absolutely demolished by Monique's performance that like, that's why she, when she wipes the tear away, she kind of is emotionless and she looks away. And Daniels Mm. thought that was so amazing. He's like, gotta leave it in. Hmm. All right. So who's your number five? Who's at the bottom of the list? For me, it's... Sandra Bullock. Yeah, I would say Sandra is my number five and my number four would be not too high above number five and that would be Helen Mirren. Agreed. All right. So, so far so good. Number three, Uh I bet it's Meryl Streep, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think I already showed my cards with that. Carrie Mulligan was my number two. All right. Mulligan is my two as well. And uh, here's the funny thing with like, I almost feel like, and this is going to make no sense whatsoever. My Streep and my Bullock are tied, but they're three and five. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Does that make sense? Nope. (laughs) Okay. All right. I guess that means the Oscar goes to Gabri Sidibe for Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. I think this might be the first time that the actual winner is at the absolute bottom of the list. Can you think of another time? No. They all deserve this award over Sandra. Sorry, Sandy. I know you're our girl next door, but I think if Mulligan is fantastic, but she's going to eventually win. More to the point, while An Education is a good movie, it's pedestrian compared to Precious. Precious is a singular film experience. I mean, when you and I were young men, the idea of a movie about a protagonist who is overweight, black, and female, right there, that's a character sketch that seems like in the 90s would have been a comedy, would have been some fucking nutty professor nonsense. But it's treated treated with complete and total respect. I mean, and add on the fact that she's undereducated, impoverished, egregiously abused by her parents. And despite all the pile-on of absolute shit, her story still feels hopeful. This girl throughout it all perseveres. And it's a testament to Lee Daniels doing the work and whoever his casting agent was doing the work to find Sidibe. And I wish more directors would do that. I wish there were more unknowns. Maybe there will be. Maybe we'll get to a point where we realize that, I mean, right now, and I don't think I weighed in, but like the reason why they find names is because it's the easiest way to put people in the seats. Sure. We're always looking for the easiest way to make money and not necessarily making great art. It's the same thing when it came to the Academy Awards this year and upping their nomination process to 10 best pitchers. It was the easiest way to try and get more viewers to watch their award show when really it shouldn't be about it shouldn't be about the viewers. Van Gogh <laughs> didn't paint for everybody who's looking at his paintings now and calling him a genius. He just wanted that one cell. You know, like Lee Daniels could have possibly put, he could have put a famous name in that slot, but he was like, no, this is a real story and I want to make a real film and do real art. And while The Blind Side makes $310 million, being exceptionally beat for beat storytelling, Precious made $70 million and is a way better film and they should be much more proud of it. And the Academy should recognize that and be proud that this kind of art exists. It took a long Took a long time to see 
Well, sounds like we've come to the end of another episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Second episode of the season. We're rolling right along. I look forward to episode three. Well, I said it last last week or two weeks ago. I'm happy to be back. It is an absolute pleasure. <laughs> so, and speaking of being back, we will be back again in two weeks' time to discuss Danny Boyle's Slumdog Millionaire. We'll talk about why it's similar to, but even less worthy than Forrest Gump as a Best Picture winner. But until then, I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. Well, that does it for this episode. Look for the next episode Monday, October 4th, when we go one year further into the past and take the glory away from some slum dogs. And if you're new to our little shindig, Spro and Lee episodes, Old and Fresh, are released every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or send an email to takeontheacademy at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, complaints, recipes, or manifestos. We like hearing from you. We'll see you front row when the envelopes are ready.